And if you'll take your Bible and turn with me to Revelation chapter 14, we're going to finish that off this evening. Revelation 14, we'll be looking at verses 14 through 20. And so I will read those verses to you. But before I do, I remind you, as always, brothers and sisters, that what we're about to hear read is the word of the living God. And so let us attend to it as such and receive it from him as such. Revelation 14, verses 14 through 20. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, "'Put in your sickle.'" And gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. This is the word of the Lord. Let us thank Him for it. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we know that You have caused Your Word to be written and preserved for our good and for Your glory. And so we ask, therefore, that we might now hear your word and learn from your word and inwardly digest your word so that by your grace and through the comfort of the Holy Scriptures, we might embrace and ever hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have graciously given us in your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask this in His name and for His sake. Amen. Well, I don't think that we can be reminded too often in our study of the book of Revelation, because we're so prone to forget this, that this revelation was given by God for the encouragement and comfort of a church that was suffering extreme persecution at the hands of their enemies. 
And so the whole point of this revelation, this vision of Christ himself, is that his people would be encouraged and comforted and strengthened by the Holy Spirit as they beheld the glory of this vision to endure and persevere even as they lost everything, even their very own lives. Because we can imagine if we put ourselves in their situation, as they looked at their enemies and their enemies seemed to continually be triumphing over them, they would begin to wonder, is the Lord going to be slow in keeping his promise? Are we going to be able to endure and persevere through this? Are our enemies forever going to seemingly, from our perspective, have the upper hand? Because they knew the promise of Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman, Christ, would come. And what would he do? He would step on the head of the serpent. He would crush his skull. And though Christ, in his first coming, had dealt that decisive blow, the final blow had not yet come because he hadn't returned again. And so we can imagine them becoming weary and discouraged and wondering, is the Lord going to keep his promise? And the Lord Jesus, as he does for his people, cares for us so well. And so through the pen of the apostle, he writes down this vision that shows us as God's people yet again, with absolute clarity, Jesus, when he comes back again, will cut down all of his enemies so not a single one will remain standing. Not one. And I say again because as we've gone through the book of Revelation, we've already seen this vision before, haven't we? In the sixth seal being opened, right? We see the final day of judgment. We have that vision. Then we see it again when the sixth trumpet is blown. And so what we're seeing through Revelation is it's this cycle of many of the same visions, the same truths being communicated symbolically in different ways to us. It's as if the Lord is taking these truths and saying, I'm afraid you're not going to get it. So let me give it to you again and again, seven times to be exact, the number of completeness, so that it leaves this impression on your heart and your mind. And you will know with absolute certainty, I'm coming back. So hold on. Justice is coming because I'm coming. And brothers and sisters, we need to hear the exact same thing today. Because I know that we're not experiencing much by way of physical persecution here in the West as Christians. All you have to do is go to Voice of the Martyrs and read story after story of how our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world are being put to death by their enemies. And so we wonder, as Revelation 6.10, the martyrs ask for us, they give us voice, how long, O Lord, until you avenge us? And this vision says, I'm coming. And I will cut down all of your enemies, all of my enemies. And so tonight, as we look at this vision, I want us to see two realities here. First of all, I want us to look at the judge in verse 14. John gives us this vision of Jesus as judge, and he relays that to us by using various symbolism from the Old Testament. And so we'll look at that. First of all, the judge in verse 14. And then second of all, we'll look at the judgment that the judge brings the horrific, unqualified, total judgment that Jesus brings upon his enemies 
in verses 15 through 20. And again, brothers and sisters, it's meant to bring us great comfort. We're to rest that this is our Savior, and He is coming again to judge the living and the dead. So let's look first then at the judge in verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. So what John is doing here is, again, he's showing us truths about Jesus as judge by using what we'll see as Old Testament language and symbolism to show us that Jesus is, in fact, coming back to judge our enemies. And so we'll look at these various descriptions here. First of all, we see that Jesus is sitting on a white cloud. This white cloud is like Jesus' chariot. And hopefully any time I say cloud and say that it has reference to Old Testament symbolism, your mind is filled with all sorts of examples of clouds in the Old Testament. Particularly because God manifests His glory and His presence with His people, often throughout the Old Testament, with a cloud, doesn't He? You can think, first of all, during the time of the Exodus. He leads His people in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, doesn't He? And when, at the end of Exodus, the Lord's glory comes down and fills the temple so that no one can go in there, how does the Lord manifest his glory to his people? It's a cloud, the Shekinah glory cloud. And when the Lord's presence leaves his people, devastatingly in Ezekiel, again, the cloud retracts, it disappears. And so what we're being told here, by the way, one last Old Testament reference, who alone comes from heaven to earth in the clouds in the Old Testament? God himself does. And so what we're being shown here is the divinity of Jesus and the fact that when he comes back the second time, he's not coming veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail incarnate deity, right? Lowly, meek. He's not coming back that way the second time. He's not coming back as a lamb to be slain. He's coming back as a lion to devour his enemies. He comes with his divinity, not veiled, but in full display. All of his power. All of his authority. And why is he coming on the clouds? To judge. That's the picture that we get here. Next, John describes Jesus, the judge, as one like a son of man. And again, if you're familiar with your New Testament at all, you know that this is one of Jesus' favorite self-references, isn't it? No less than 79 times throughout the gospel, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. And what Jesus is doing when he calls himself that, he's fully aware that he's referencing Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. What happens there? The Ancient of Days, the Father, is on his throne, and the Son of Man comes before him to receive authority and dominion and an everlasting kingdom. And do you remember what happens? Books are opened. The Son of Man is coming to judge. He's coming to judge the nations. He's coming to judge all of his enemies. And so John is very intentionally using this language saying, here comes the judge. God himself with his divinity on display. And so that's why Jesus says in Matthew 24 verse 30, 
that at the end of all things, everyone will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. It's also why John, earlier in his revelation, chapter 1, verse 13, Jesus is seen by John in a vision amongst the lampstands, amongst the churches. And we know this from the letters that are then given to the churches. Jesus, in part, is not just there to encourage the church, but he's also there to judge his enemies who are even within the walls of the church. And so what do we see? The Son of Man coming in the clouds. He's coming to judge. Next description, he has a golden crown on his head. What is this about? I think there's two truths here. First of all, Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's not come grasping after authority that isn't rightly his. Who did he receive that crown from? From the Father himself, the victor's crown, because he did all that the Father gave him to do. And in so doing, he conquered sin and death and the devil. He dealt that decisive blow to the enemy. And so now he comes to judge all mankind because he is king of kings and lord of lords. Next, we notice what? He has a sharp sickle in his hand. And again and again throughout the Old Testament, the harvest time is spoken of as a time of judgment. It's a metaphor for judgment. And oftentimes in the Old Testament, most of the time, when a sickle comes up as imagery, and we'll look at this in Joel chapter 3 a little bit later in the sermon, a sickle symbolizes this judgment. This judgment that's going to come upon God's enemies. And so Jesus is holding this to show to us in no uncertain terms, I've come to judge. And this takes us back to John's gospel, doesn't it? Because what does John record Jesus saying in John chapter 5, verse 22? This is Jesus speaking. The Father doesn't judge anyone. Why? Because he's given all authority to me as his son. And so when I come back the second time, I'm coming to judge my enemies. I'm coming to cut them down. The time of repentance that we saw earlier in chapter 14, that's gone and done. Now you must stand and give an account for all the deeds that you have done in the body. And so this is the vision that John gives us, the glorified Christ returning as judge. And why does John start here in this section? He starts here because Why is this entire revelation of Jesus necessary? Because the greatest problem that we have, or the answer to all of our problems ultimately, is that we would have a clear vision and understanding of who Jesus is. And what he has done for us in the past, what he's doing for us currently, and what he will do in the future. And so John says, behold, your Savior in all of his glory, And what he's coming back to do. And so really he's saying, don't fear your enemies because they're all around you and they seem to have the upper hand. Fear me. Because I guarantee you when I come back in all my glory, they're going to fear me. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess. Unwillingly because the force of my presence will be so strong they won't be able to help but bow the knee to my power and glory put on display. So that's the the vision of the judge that we have here. Then let's actually look at this horrific judgment 
that the judge brings about in verses 15 through 20. So look at verse 15 first with me. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. I know this is pretty clear, but explain to you what's happening. There's another angel that shows up. Another angel, you're like, wait a minute, I thought the Son of Man was Jesus. Is another angel telling us that the Son of Man isn't actually Jesus, but an angel? No. Remember the context of chapter 14. Angels have been coming and going the whole time. So all John is trying to tell you is now another angel has appeared. But note what the angel is doing. This angel is telling the one sitting on the cloud that it's time for the final judgment. Now, that might cause you to pause and go, wait a minute, so maybe we got the identity of the Son of Man wrong. Because this angel, a created being, created by Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, has no authority over Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God. So why is this angel saying this to Jesus, the Son of Man, and then saying that the time is complete, the day of judgment is here, so go and reap the harvest. Well, remember, Jesus himself says in his earthly ministry that according to his human nature, he doesn't know the hour or the time when the Father will send him to come back to get his bride. He says in Matthew twenty four thirty six, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Okay, so you go, all right, so that's why the Son doesn't know. But then, how did the angel know? That's the next question we have to ask. Well, here's the answer. Notice where the angel came from in verse 15. Where does the angel came from? And another angel came out of the temple. Which temple? The heavenly temple. Who dwells in the heavenly temple? God the Father. And he sits on his throne. And so here's the image that we're getting. The angel has received this news from the Father. And so now the Father sends the angel out of the temple to go tell the Son. The Father says it's time. It's time to go get your bride. The day of judgment has come. It's time for you to cut down your enemies. Because the way you save your bride is through the judgment of those who oppress her. And so that's what's going on here. The Father sent an angel. The angel tells the Son. And then the Son acts on the Father's command. The fullness of time has come. And so we see that in verse 16. Look there with me. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. So the Son obeys the Father, does this. And then here's the question, though. So what is this harvest? What is this reaping that is taking place? Well, this has already been mentioned to us again and again throughout the Gospels, hasn't it? When John the Baptist says that one whose sandals he's not worthy to untie is coming, he says what in Matthew 3, verse 12? His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. It's the same harvest that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 13. 
Remember the parable of the seeds. And Jesus says, I'll send my angels and there'll be wheat and tares until that time. And then the wheat and the tares will be cut down. The wheat will be put safely in the barn and the chaff will be burnt up. Now here's the thing. In the Gospels, when John and Jesus are talking about this harvest, they're talking about the dual nature of it that the redeemed are harvested and saved and the unredeemed are cast into the fires of hell. Here in Revelation 14, we're just talking about the judgment because we've already seen in Revelation 14, 1 through 5, the wheat, as it were, being harvested and kept safely in the barns, in God's presence, by Jesus, with the lamb, the 144,000, the fullness of of the people of God. So all we have here in this vision is the bad news for God's enemies of their judgment, but the good news for God's people. Now, what do we have then in verses 17 through 19? Well, we have the same judgment represented to us a little bit differently symbolically. Now, I'll let you know that historically there's been two camps here. In interpreting this passage, some have said verses 14 through 16 are referring to believers being brought in. And then verses 17 through 20 is talking about very clearly the judgment of unbelievers. And I disagree with dividing it up that way. I think it's the same judgment day at the end of all things being represented to us twice using a little bit of different symbolism. So let's read verses 17 through 19, and then we'll look at it a little bit more. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. So again, same reality just represented to us a little bit differently, which may then cause you to ask, why? Why does John give this vision to us twice? Well, again, he's already given it to us twice before this. In the sixth seal being opened, the sixth trumpet being blown, And now he's giving it to us twice again here. Again, this idea of it leaving an impression on us, reminding us this is going to happen. I mean, haven't you found, brothers and sisters, that much of the Christian life is reminding yourself of the same truths over and over and over again because we of little faith are so slow to believe. And so I think that's what's happening here. The gravity, the weight of this reality is being represented to us twice so that it leaves an impression on us. And the main reason that I think that both of these visions are talking about this final day of judgment, this is, I think, the clencher, in my opinion, as I was wrestling through this. If you go back to Joel chapter 3, verse 13, which you don't have to turn there, but you can write it down later. I'm going to read it to you. Listen to the two images or the symbols that Joel uses to talk about the judgment of God's enemies. Joel 3.13, put in the sickle. Okay, there's our first symbol. For the harvest is ripe. By the way, that's like the exact same language that we have here in Revelation 14. Joel goes on to say, go in tread for the winepress 
is full. The vats overflow for their evil is great. So the context is the fullness of times coming. The evil of the enemies of God has reached its zenith. It's time for the sickle to be carried and the enemies to be thrown into the vat and squashed. And so these two images are brought together in judgment. And I think John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and his knowledge of the Old Testament, is just wholesale borrowing that imagery. And so for me, that seals the deal that both of these visions are talking about this final day of judgment. And it's a horrific reality, isn't it? I mean, just in case you missed it, look at verse 19 with me again. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the great harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. The enemies of God are being put into this winepress and they're going to be stomped on. They're going to be squashed and their blood is going to flow out of this winepress. This is the imagery, the symbolism that John is using. Why is he using this symbolism? Again, ripping it off from the Old Testament. (laughs) He has the authority of the Holy Spirit to do that, so that's why he's doing that. But listen to this dialogue that happens in Isaiah 63, verses 2 and 3. Here's the question in Isaiah 63, 2 and 3. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? There's the question. Here's the answer. I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. Horrific stuff, isn't it? But what's John making abundantly clear to us? This is judgment. This is judgment met out on God's enemies. And it's just worth saying, we're not to find glee and delight in this, brothers and sisters, as an end in itself. It should be revolting to us that God is taking those who bear his image and wipes them out, destroys them for all eternity in the fires of hell. We don't delight in that as an end in itself. We delight that the justice of God is put on display, that justice is upheld. There are ultimately no miscarriages of justice because of Jesus, who is the judge, to whom all judgment has been entrusted by the Father. And just to get the last little glimpse of how horrific this vision is, and hopefully it leaves a strong impression on us, look at verse 20. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. So where is all this happening, by the way? Where are the enemies of God being cut down? It's not inside the city. It's outside the city. Now, the question we then have to ask is, which city is he talking about? Is he talking about Babylon? No, that doesn't make any sense. You know what city he's talking about? Look back at Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, that's Jesus, and with him 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. The people of God are safely within the city, protected by Jesus himself. The judge who has all authority, all power, 
His divinity on full display. So where is this happening? Outside of that city. It's happening to the enemies. They're being destroyed while God's people are being kept safe. And what's happening to God's enemies? Well, their blood is flowing from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Are you getting the picture? This isn't a little blood being spilled. It's not a little splatter of blood. It's not just a little squirt of blood. You're talking about a lake of blood. 1,600 stadia is almost 200 miles. 184 miles. You can see that in the footnote in your Bible. And the horses that they're talking about here, in context, you're not talking about these cute little toy horses or whatever they're called, the miniature horses. You're talking about battle horses. They are tall, right? They're many hands high. And what John is saying is the blood would go up to their bridles so a horse can swim in this lake of blood. You say, okay, we've got kids in here. Can we stop with the imagery? It's important. It's communicating to us the totality, the fullness. There is no enemy left. They have all been cut down. You're afraid any of your enemies will continue to have the upper hand over you? Don't be afraid of that, John is saying. Jesus is saying to his church, all of them. It will be devastating, but they will all be cut down. This day is coming. And so, brothers and sisters, what are we to take away from this? Well, first of all, I think it's really important that we understand, as I'm sure John's original audience did, we're to rest in this reality. We're to rest in the reality that Jesus is coming back. He will exact justice. He is justice itself. You understand there's no standard by which you get to say, hey, that's God, the Father, the Son, of the Holy Spirit. That's not just. No, no, no. He is justice. He is the standard. And so you don't have to worry that some wrongs won't be righted. When Jesus comes back, he says, you can rest assured knowing I will right every wrong. I will cut down every single one of your enemies. And do you know how much that frees us up? We don't have to be eaten up with bitterness. We don't have to be harboring thoughts of vengeance, celebrating the little ways that our enemies might get tripped up in this life, but rather loving them, blessing them, praying for them. Don't you worry about justice being done. It will be done. Now, do what you can within reason. But there are so many times in this life where we see miscarriage after miscarriage of justice, don't we? Just go read the news. What can we do about that? What hope is there? Will injustice reign forever? Jesus says in this vision, absolutely not. So don't be eaten up with bitterness. Don't you try to make the world something that only I can. Do what you can, but don't expect it to be perfect. I will uphold justice when I come back. And so you love your enemies. And let vengeance be mine. By the way, in light of this vision, don't you see how pathetic your justice and vengeance are in comparison to God? Now, this is probably a good place for me to also say, pray that your enemies repent. Don't sit around rejoicing and going, well, I'm not praying for your repentance, and boy, am I excited when Jesus comes and cuts you down. That's not the response. The response is to pray that they would repent. And then, If they don't, and they persist in their unrepentant sin, 
we know that they will be cut down. So that's the first thing. Know that and rest that justice is coming because Jesus is coming. Second of all, and this is just glorious, we can rest knowing that though we deserve this kind of judgment, we'll never experience it. Those of us who are in Christ will never be stomped on by Christ. We won't experience the fullness of the wrath of God because all of that was experienced by Jesus in our place. You understand that's the whole point of, Paul says in Romans, that God is both just and the justifier. How can that possibly be? Well, because Jesus, who is now the judge, came and was judged in our place. He was stomped by God in his wrath on the cross so that you don't have to worry about that. You don't have to fear that. That wrath has been spent in full on Jesus so that you're delivered from that. Isn't that incredible? I mean, we may look at this and go, guy, this seems like a bit much. If you think this judgment is a bit much, you have a very low view of who God is. Because all of this is necessary because our sins, as small as they may seem in our eyes and the eyes of other people, they're against an infinitely holy, righteous, perfect, glorious God to whom we owe everything. And when we sin, we shake our fist in His hands. And He says, I will not, I cannot let that slide. And so because of who He is, this is what sin is deserves. And so as we see that Jesus experienced that in our place on the cross, do our hearts melt over this reality? His love put on display, his mercy towards us as his bride, knowing that God has shown us in his son that he's crushed in our place. He's trampled under the wrath of almighty God outside of the city for our sins. So we should rejoice in that. And then lastly, as we rejoice in that grace that we've been shown, we then long for that grace to be shown to those around us who don't know Jesus. I mean, what's one of the surest ways that you can know that you've been shown grace by God is that you want everyone around you to know that same grace, don't you? That's what you want. And so are we in prayer for the unbelievers around us? Are we going out of our way to establish relationships and look for opportunities and grab at them when they come to share the good news with those who are the enemies of God? Because listen, if we believe God's word, that this is actually the future of God's enemies, we don't want this for them. And so we should be filled with compassion And on our faces in prayer that God might do the miracle in them that he's done in us, regenerating their hearts, removing the scales from their eyes that they might behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters, the only way that we're going to be able to do this, have this kind of evangelistic zeal, have this confidence that justice will reign forever when Jesus comes back? How can we endure that when there's just injustice all around us and even in ourselves? How can we endure that? Only if our gaze is on Christ, on our judge, on our Savior, the one who's redeemed us, 
And only as our hearts resound with that old song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this vision of Your wrath is overwhelming. We agree with Your Word. Truly, it is a frightening thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And we rejoice to know that Christ is our substitute. Experience that in our place. And we pray that we would be a people who rest in His coming, look forward to anticipate it, know it as our blessed hope. And because of that, in resting in Christ, we are busy with the task that You have left us, opening our mouths, singing, rejoicing, meditating on the glories of the Gospel. May You use us and our little church to see many come to Christ as brands plucked from the fire to the praise of Your glorious grace. We ask this in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen.